Well, good morning, everyone. Special welcome if you're a guest with us. My name is Alex. I'm the pastor of Cascades. And today we are going to be jumping back into the Gospel of Matthew. For the past uh, couple months, we've been in Galatians, looking at the fruit of the Spirit and looking at the different facets of it. But today we're going to be in Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. And to start, I want to ask us this question. Because I think it's something uh, that all of us experience at some point or another if you follow Jesus. What do you do when your experience doesn't align with what you've believed and been taught about Jesus and his way? What do you do when what you've shared about the life that's available in Jesus doesn't actually feel like it's your experience? When you proclaim that there's life in Jesus, but all around you, you keep experiencing death. When you say that real and permanent joy is possible, but you're living in apathy and sadness. When you believe healing is available, but you're walking through grief and you're constantly reminded of your frailty, what do you do? When your mouth sings that song, freedom reigns in this place, but your heart is wondering why you feel so enslaved to disordered habits and destructive patterns and thinking that cause pain to you and to others. When you follow and trust Jesus, but the life, and, uh, the life that he says that comes with you, following him doesn't actually correspond, you feel, like with what you're experiencing. What do you do? You see, if you follow Jesus long enough, this will be your experience where you will be trying to make sense of who Jesus says he is, who you've been taught he is, and the circumstances you find yourself in. It's confusing, it's discouraging, it's painful. How do you come through that? This morning what we're going to look at in Matthew 11 is someone in that kind of situation. And they're trying to make sense of who Jesus is. We're looking at the, this guy, John the Baptizer. Some people like to call him a Baptist, but Baptist didn't exist in the first century, guys. So it can't be that. It's John the Baptizer. And what we see is he, go, he, he was this guy who proclaims that life comes from Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet what he's experiencing after proclaiming this isn't quite blessing, but something closer to judgment. It doesn't make sense to him. So he comes to Jesus with a question, or rather he sends his disciples to Jesus with a question. And Jesus' response offers us a picture of what we can expect and how we can walk through these periods that are often called this confusing in-between. So with all that said, let's look at Matthew chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to move all the way through to 15. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. 
What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of a woman, born of women, there, was, there has arisen no greater than John the Baptist. Baptizer. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the baptizer, until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, who reveals what you are like to us, who makes you known to us. May we know you as good. Help us to experience your goodness. May we know you as gentle. Help us to experience the gentleness of your grace and your correction. And may we know you as trustworthy. Help us to see how worthy of our trust you truly are. I pray this in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen. So this morning what I want to do is have us look at John's question, what brings him to ask Jesus this question, and then I want us to look at just three themes that come about from Jesus' response to him and the crowds who were listening. John's question. John's in prison, we're told, and he hears the deeds of the Messiah. And it's the first time that Matthew uses this word in his gospel to talk about Jesus as the Messiah since the very beginning. Now he's saying, yeah, the deeds of the Messiah. But it's John who's in prison. And John sends his disciples to go ask Jesus a question. He says, are you the one to come or shall we look to another? Now, this question, when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, is kind of interesting. It's not an ordinary question because in Matthew chapter 3, we read of how John, this very same John, called people to get into a right relationship with God by returning to him turning away from their old and selfish ways and turning towards God. And the way that this would be marked was by being baptized in the Jordan River. This was this picture of their readiness to follow God again, of having been, had their sins cleansed away. And John proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, God's long-awaited king. He would bring God's kingdom on earth and restore God's good and beautiful world to what he intended it to be. And he would judge evil on earth, done by humans and by spiritual beings. And so John's message was super simple. Return to the Lord and experience the flourishing or the blessing that comes from being in right relationship with him or risk judgment. And the response to this message was remarkable. It was a move of God as, as hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people from the surrounding towns and cities left their homes and came out into the desert to hear John preach. People turned away from their old lives and identified with this message. It also even just drew attention, negative attention, from the religious leaders from Jerusalem and in other places. And one day as John was doing this, the one that he talked about 
who was to come, the Messiah, walked up to him. And he came to him, up to him face to face. The one who said, who he said was coming had arrived. And you can read that encounter and what happens in Matthew 3. And then in between that, Matthew 3 and now, where we are in Matthew 11, John is arrested and imprisoned by King Herod. And it's almost like John's ministry comes to a grounding halt. And Jesus's begins. But John doesn't get to witness any of it. He's only hearing about these things that are happening. John is stuck. Prison didn't feel like the kingdom of heaven on earth to John. If anything, it felt more like God's judgment on what he thought was the good guy. Meanwhile, Herod, the one inflicting suffering and and rejecting God's message, seemed to be flourishing. How does this make sense? How does this work? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look to another This is the question, though we don't phrase it like this, that we ask. Because it is the question of someone who is confused and doubting. John is saying, I believe God says he is. I believe there's a promised Messiah. But when it comes to those who turn to him experiencing blessing and those who reject him and experience judgment, I'm imprisoned. This doesn't make sense. Therefore, maybe you're not the Messiah. Should I look for someone else? Underneath this question is this trying to make sense of it. Like, what's happening? This doesn't make sense. I followed you. I obeyed you. I trusted you. Why am I going through this if you called me? Was it all in vain? Who are you, Jesus? Are you really who you claim to be, or should I look somewhere else? I love that John asks this. I love that this is included in the Gospel of Matthew, because right before this, in Matthew 10, we're given what's uh, sometimes called Jesus' Sermon on Mission. And he tells his disciples that he's sending them out, that he's giving them authority to do what he does, to proclaim good news, to heal and restore. But then he tells them that they will experience rejection and suffering and persecution, that it will not be easy. And immediately following this, in Matthew 11, now we see one example of what, how that can look. And right after this, you're going to see what it looks like for Jesus when he gets rejected. John's question should be this great comfort of a guy who is completely confused and even beginning to doubt who Jesus really is, and he sends that question to Jesus, and Jesus does not get angry or defensive. Listen to what Jesus says. He will confirm who he is. He will gently correct John and his disciples, and he will call all those who will listen to him to trust him. So first thing Jesus does is he says, yeah, I'm the promised king. Verses 4 and 5. I am the one to come is another way of saying I am the Messiah. I'm God's anointed king. Jesus tells John's disciples, tell, tell tell him what you hear and see, that the blind see, that the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, and the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Jesus could have simply said, yeah, I am. But instead, he lays out what he's been doing in Matthews 8 and 9. Why? 
Because his actions that he describes here parallel and fulfill the descriptions of the Messiah that the prophet Isaiah spoke about, specifically in Isaiah 35, 29, 26, and 61. John would have known these passages that Jesus was alluding to. He would have memorized them. You know a tree by its fruit. You know a mango tree is a mango tree because you see mangoes growing from it. An apple tree because you see apples growing on it. Jesus is saying, look at the fruit that grows wherever I go. Healing, restoration, new life, good news for the poor. These are signs of the kingdom of heaven invading earth. That in me, the future is actually spilling over into the present. You're not mistaken, John. You're right. I am the Messiah. You have not misplaced your hope. You don't need to look to anyone else but me. And this can be so challenging, and yet it's so comforting that Jesus will say this. Some of you, and I have friends in my own life, who they're living this type of experience. They've experienced a series of unexpected losses in their family, in their marriage, and yet, all the while around them, they are seeing Jesus bring healing through them to other people. And there's this tension that they're experiencing of grief and sadness. But Jesus using them to actually impact and bless others, bring healing to others. And it's in this place of pain and confusion that Jesus will meet us. And he uses our tender hearts to express his love and healing power to those that he wants to touch. John needs to rehear who Jesus is. It's not enough to simply remember. It's actually to hear from him. He needs a fresh encounter with Jesus. And Jesus graciously confirms who he is to John, reassuring him it's not all in vain. But Jesus also gently corrects him or offers him a blessing. In light of being king and John's experience and those two not really feeling like they're aligned, at least in John's mind, Jesus says, you're blessed if you're not offended by me. You're blessed if you're not offended by the way I rule. Because I'm a king. I'm the Messiah. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, it says in verse 6. And there's these two words that are tricky for us because we don't use them very regularly or in the way that maybe it's meant here in the Bible. And those two words are blessed and offended. Blessed is this word makarios in Greek. The Bible uses it differently than we would today. If things are going well for us, uh, we're getting our desired outcomes, we'll say, yeah, I'm I'm blessed. It just feels like I've got a lot of blessings in life. But that's not how Jesus is using it. That's not the way the New Testament uses it. Makarios is this declaration of being in a state of flourishing. It refers to how God sees us and our condition. And so this blessedness that Jesus is talking about here is centered on on how God feels about us and our condition. Flourishing are you if you're not offended by the way that I rule, by who I am in my ways. This word offended, that we get offended from, in Greek it's this scandalizo. It's where we get the word scandalized from. And it literally means to put an impediment in the, in the way that causes someone to trip and fall. It was also used as a metaphor for offending someone in such a way that would cause them to distrust you. 
and desert you, or causing them to unjustly judge you, or causing them to reject acknowledging you and who you are. Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. And he says it to John because John and his disciples are beginning to lose the big picture. He believes because he's not experiencing the good life he thinks he should, that those who reject Jesus aren't being judged, that something is wrong with Jesus, that Jesus can't really be the Messiah. His understanding of the Messiah is, is challenged here. And so Jesus is basically says to John, look around you. Are people experiencing the kingdom of heaven? John says, uh, yeah, but I'm suffering. I'm being persecuted for trusting you. If you're the guy that wants to come, why aren't things better for me? Where's justice? This isn't just. This isn't okay. Why isn't evil being judged outright? Why aren't you making all things right like the Messiah is supposed to? And this is why Jesus says, as far as I'm concerned, you are flourishing if you're not offended by the way that I rule as king. Because John is, what John isn't seeing is that both blessing and judgment are at work in Jesus. That blessing is at work in the poor and the sick and the blind and the oppressed, but judgment will come to those who reject Jesus and his way. The problem is, in John's understanding of God's uh, timing, he's got the promises of God right, but his expectation of the timing of them is off. And he's losing sight of this big picture of God's timing and how both blessing and judgment are being revealed in Jesus' ministry. It's just not unfolding the way John wants it to. The Messiah has brought the kingdom of heaven on earth, and, it's, it, and yet it's not here in its fullness. And so there's still evil, there's still injustice, persecution, and suffering. How can this be? How can this be that it's come, but it's not here in its fullness? And how can Jesus really be the Messiah? And see, God is exceedingly patient and gracious, more than you can imagine. He is always at work, and it's hard to see it, though. It's hard to always see it, to feel it, to hear him, but he is. More than 30 years later, after this event, another group of disciples are going through this type of experience. Disciples of Jesus, Jesus has died, risen again after three days, ascended to heaven. The gift of the Spirit has been given to the church. And Peter, one of Jesus' first disciples, is writing a letter to some of these disciples. Peter's actually in prison himself in Rome, probably by Emperor Nero, and he's realized he's going to be executed. And so he writes this letter more than one letter, to Christians who are discouraged by what felt like the slowness of Jesus, Jesus' second coming. And he tells them there's a reason for it in Second Peter chapter 3. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance, that all would turn around. He is incredibly patient so that even people like Herod, who are rejecting Jesus, rejecting John's message and imprisoning John, 
He's patient so that there would be time and even an opportunity for him to turn. It feels slow, but he is not slow to fulfill his promises. And right after this, Peter will say that the day of the Lord will come swiftly. He waits to be gracious. He doesn't want anyone to perish. His timing is perfect. And so Jesus is saying, look, you are flourishing. If my way of ruling as king does not create blocks that cause you to trip up. You're flourishing if my ways of reigning do not cause you to unfavorably or unjustly judge me. You're flourishing if my ways of reigning do not cause you to disapprove of me and hinder you from acknowledging my claim as king over everything in heaven and earth and including your life. You're flourishing if despite the waiting and the suffering on account of me, you still believe I am good, trustworthy, and gracious. One way a guy put it that I read this week is, God bless you if you do not throw the whole thing over because I'm a different kind of Messiah than you were expecting. And that's at work here. And we experience this. Jesus, you are not the king I expected you to be in my life. You are not doing the things I expected you to do when I began following you. Your timing is way too slow. You are allowing me to walk into situations that do not feel good or appropriate or in any way leading to flourishing. And he says, you're flourishing if you're not offended and caused to be tripped up by me and my ways. If you still believe that I am good, trustworthy, and gracious. I think we need to hear that word that actually when we hold on in those moments where we are confused that that we're wondering and asking these questions that he does not actually push us away but he gives us these words of life you're flourishing if you don't let go even though you're confused even though you're doubting he can handle those things But the third thing that Jesus will say is he begins to turn to the crowd and he talks to them. He talks to the crowd about what did you go out into the desert for? And he uses these different um, illustrations. What he's talking about is John, though. He's like, the first one refers to, did you uh, go out to see this reed blowing in the wind? It's this picture of someone who would be weak and cower or cave in situations where they're tempted or afraid. And he's like, did you go out to the desert to see that? He's like, no, because that's not what John did. John wasn't afraid. He spoke truth to power, and that's what got him in prison. Did you go out to the desert to see someone who was finely dressed in the desert? No, John was not known for being someone who dressed well. He had an overgrown beard. He ate uh, honey and locusts. That was what he lived off of. And he, I think he was a sheepskin or goatskin that he just wore. He wasn't known for being someone who dressed really well. He, his way of living and dressing matched the message that he proclaimed. And what he's trying to get at is that what, the one you went out to hear, all these crowds who would have listened, was a prophet, yeah, but a unique prophet. A unique prophet in that he was the one that was promised, who would go out and prepare the way for the Messiah. Only one would get to do that. And then Jesus says this. 
Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Those in my kingdom are greater than the greatest human ever born. And so there's two layers to this. And this can be confusing for us, so I'm just going to try, I'm trying my best to make sense of it. There's these two layers. One is about Jesus himself, what he's implying about himself through saying this. And the other is about what he thinks of his disciples. John is the greatest man ever born. But if that is the case, then what does it say about Jesus? John is the greatest man ever born of a woman, but Jesus is a man. So what is Jesus implying about himself? It can't be that Jesus is less than John. Later on in the Gospel of John, uh, John will say, he must become greater and I must become less. He must increase, I must decrease. John will say to his disciples when he sees John in the Gospel of John, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's not saying that about himself. He's pointing to Jesus saying that. But here Jesus seems to be saying something. So Jesus is implying something about who he is. But more than that, he says, this whole thing about the most insignificant person in his kingdom is greater than John. So if the most insignificant person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, then what does that say about Jesus, who is the bringer of the kingdom? I think Jesus has already communicated this, and we missed it. He communicated it through his actions and when he paraphrased Isaiah 35 to John's disciples. This is what John 35 says, verses 4 through 6. Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Who? The Messiah, does it say? It says God. Your God will come. And then it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What does this say about Jesus? I think it tells us that Jesus is God incarnate that he comes to save, that he comes to heal and restore, that his divine identity is actually being revealed through these very acts, that that's who he is. He says, the least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John, who was the greatest man ever born. And the reason is not because the least in the kingdom are professionally better or greater than John. It's not that John is terrible. He isn't saying what John did in his ministry was meaningless or that he didn't matter. John was this massively important and transitional figure. His ministry was preparing the way of the Lord, but it marked the end of an era. And that's what Jesus is getting at. It marked the end of one era and the beginning of another. The end of the old era and the beginning of the, the new beginning of God's creation brought by Jesus. God's new creation. Jesus is saying there is a difference in kind about people in my kingdom compared to John. 
they are greater in the kingdom because they have experienced a new birth, not a birth from a, a, a woman, but this rebirth, a birth that comes from God himself when you put your trust in me. That's the kind of difference. That's why the least in the kingdom, the newest uh, follower of Jesus, still learning to trust him, just figuring it out, still tons of questions, they don't understand everything, but they put their trust in Jesus. The least in the kingdom of, of heaven are greater than John. Not because John is terrible, but because this new era has begun. Frederick Dale Bruno will put it like this. Jesus dares to say that the kingdom's littlest person is greater because the kingdom is greater than ancient history's greatest person. Because the greatness of the kingdom actually originates from God, made known to us through Jesus and by the Spirit. So if you want to know Jesus' view, he's implying it here, though you have to do a little bit of work. He's implying it here, who he is. But he also isn't telling us what he thinks of his disciples. He is God himself bringing the kingdom and even the newest, weakest, most insignificant disciples are greater than the greatest man who was ever born. And there's this great hope here in what he's calling us to, to recognize that that greatness that he brings is available to us. But all of this, as I was talking to someone about this yesterday, it feels so upside down, and that's actually what Jesus is doing. And so if you feel like this is like causing you to go like this, that's because that's part of what Jesus is doing. He's, he's literally flipping the expectations for what we think it means to live the good life, what it means to live a life that is flourishing, to live in sync with his kingdom. That's why people will talk about his kingdom being upside down. It only feels upside down to us because we've been so used to living upside down. And what he's doing is actually flipping it back to what it was meant to be so that we would live in light of who he is and what he's like. That's why he's saying, look, you're flourishing if you're not offended by the kind of Messiah I am. If you're not offended by the way that I come and rule here on earth because all of us will have these questions when we seek to trust him. And what we'll constantly be reminded of is that we don't actually have control over our lives and our situations as much as we want to and as much as different products tell us we'll have more control. We just don't. But we can follow and trust the one who is trustworthy, good, and gracious, and who can actually take evil and transform it and use it for our good while still keeping what was actually awful and evil. It still is. We're not saying, oh, that was good that happened. It was terrible. But God takes it and actually uses it for our good. That's the hope we have in him. And so what can we do? How can we take what we see in this picture of John and his question and Jesus' response, I think there's three things we can do. One is we can name our losses. See, our confusion and doubts are often tied to our losses. To what we had, these, we had these expectations for our life or what we expected. And they didn't come through. We often think of significant losses when this happens as, as the only kind of valid losses. Experiences like assaults or divorce or abuse or irreversible disease, infertility, the death of a child or a spouse or a parent, discovering that your role model wasn't the person you thought, a betrayal of trust of someone close to you. But there's other natural losses, like when your kids leave home and maybe they don't keep in touch as much as you had hoped. 
You didn't get the job or promotion you expected to get and thought you deserved. Not being where you thought you would be as a 30 or 40 or 50 year old or 60 year old. It can be as simple as the disappointment of having a, a kindergarten teacher who doesn't deliver or a university professor who does not actually care, seem to care about you and your needs and you love them as a teacher. They were a great teacher. And yet they're just not very personable or caring. It can be the disappointment of a new leader who's put into a role at your work and you just don't jive with them and they're bringing changes that you don't align with. It could be your health. And you thought you'd finally make this breakthrough and this one thing happens in life and you're like, okay, now I can finally begin to get control in my life and I can work on this and it doesn't come through. All of these are different losses. All of these, when they don't deliver, we experience disappointment, confusion. You have to name these things, not suppress them. And then what you have to do from there is actually bring your doubts and your confusion to Jesus. John's question reveals so we can bring our doubts to him. Naming them can bring about anger, discouragement, grief, confusion. But if you do not bring these to Jesus, these doubts, these questions will create blockages in your life. Like a stream of water that sustains a plot of land that gets blocked up after a rock slide. If we don't bring our losses and confusion to Jesus, eventually they become blockages that hinder God's living waters from sustaining and nourishing our lives because we stop coming to the source of life. So some of us will feel anger and because, because something has happened and we don't understand it, but we've never expressed it to him. And you've suppressed it out of this belief that it's inappropriate to ex express displeasure at God. So you've avoided Him. You've maybe accepted this happened, but you do not desire to talk to Him. Not about that. Because you actually feel anger. And you cannot express anger to God, or so you believe. The thing is, when you read the rest of the Bible, you see in the Psalms that there, there's all these Psalms called laments. There's more Psalms of lament than any other kind of Psalms. Laments pay attention to the reality that life is hard and difficult and sometimes brutal. They take notice to the apparent absence of God. They notice at times when it seems like God, it feels like God isn't good. And they cry out to God saying, I don't understand where you are. How long, oh God, must they go through this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they cry out to God for comfort and care. They come out of that confusing, in-between phase of our lives where we're disoriented because of our pain and suffering. And what you need to see is that we can communicate that we are upset, that we are confused, that we are hurt by what's happening in ways that are wrong, but also in ways that are healthy. And what we've begun to believe is that it is wrong to express anger. It is wrong to express anger in unhealthy, destructive ways. We all know that in our relationships. There's ways you can express anger to someone that is still respectful, that still respects the person. And there's other ways where when you express it, you know it's destructive because then you're the one who has to make amends.
Because you brought damage to a relationship. The same dynamic is at work in our relationship with God. We can express confusion, sadness, disappointment, anger even, but we can do it in a way that honors who He is. He hears us. And the Scripture teaches us that He always has compassion on us. Voicing these laments are part of a healthy relationship with God. The third thing we can do we hold on to who he says he is. We name our losses, we bring our doubts and confusion to Jesus, and we hold on to who he says he is, who he's revealed himself to be, the king that we've longed for. We hold on, even though it's confusing and it doesn't make sense, that's what the laments are often doing. I don't understand what you're doing, God. It feels like you're distant. It even feels like this isn't good and you're letting evil run rampant in the world and in my life. And then more often than not, finish with like, but still I will trust you. Peter doesn't understand Jesus entirely. And, and all these other people at one point have started to abandon Jesus when they don't understand his teaching. And Jesus says, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter says, where else will we run? You alone have the words of life. This is posture like, I don't fully understand, but I know your character is good. That you are trustworthy and good. And so we hold on, trusting that it's not forever. And you see, this confusing in-between phase of our lives is where he forms his people. He uses the ordinary things of life where... He, to form us. And it's not always a prison like it was for John. It gets played out in our unfulfilled longings, your job, the place you live, relational disappointments. It's where does God some of our greatest, he does some of his greatest work in us if you will hold on and trust him. Because he doesn't make you run a marathon by yourself. He's holding you up. There was a story I read about this week in 1982. In 1980, there was this woman named Rosie Ruiz. She made uh, headlines for being the first woman to finish the Boston Marathon. She crossed the finish line first. And the Boston Marathon attracts runners from all around the world, some of the greatest runners from around the world. The trouble was when she finished and people saw her, they didn't recognize her. People did not see her run the 26.2 mile, 26 miles. She didn't look like she was a runner. And people started asking questions and looking around, and eventually it was discovered that she jumped into the race at the last mile. She, got, she had gotten the, you know, the, the laurel, all the different things that you get when you win. She got all this attention for it. But then she was caught living a lie. And some of us actually live like this when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. That we want the glamorous finish, but we don't want to be put through that real transformative work that happens in the confusing in-between. That happens when we hold on. See, we don't have to run this race called life on our own. We can hold on and actually trust that he's actually holding us up. There's this different picture of a race from the Olympics, and some of you have heard of it. 
and I'm forgetting the name right now, but it's the story of a, of a guy who was running, and in the middle of the race, he got injured, and he could not finish the race on his own, and he was just limping while everyone else sprinted, and he was just doing it to complete it. He made it through the Olympics, and on that very race, he gets hurt, and you see tears running down his face as he's like walking through the disappointment of everything he had hoped for, hoped for not happening. And then out of, out of the blue, a stranger to everyone runs onto the track field and puts his head and arms underneath the guy and begins to help him finish the race. It was his dad. And, uh, and I can't help but think that that's the kind of picture that God wants us to see he is like. That there's all these different moments in our life where we're like, I, I can't, I don't understand who you are. How can you be king in this? And he's like, I'm a king who walks alongside of you, who will not abandon you, who will uphold you with the strength of my arm. You can trust that I'm good, that my will for your life is good. And so when you name your losses and allow yourself to feel them and you begin to find ways to express your doubts and confusion to Jesus through laments and sharing it with others, when you continue to trust him and hold on, something startling begins to happen in you. You begin to discover this capacity to wait on him and surrender to his will. Over time, you begin to experience a peace and confidence in his timing. And the Spirit, what he will do in your life is begin to break those blockages so that his love can pour directly into your heart and transform you into someone whose identity and character reflects the King of Heaven. But I think one of the ultimate reasons why we can trust Jesus in these confusing moments in between is that he's someone, a king, who's actually willingly walked through it himself. And the clearest picture we see this is on his journey to the cross. On the, uh, the night before he dies, he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, asking, praying, to his Father in heaven saying, look, everything is possible through you. So if there's any other way to redeem and save your people and restore creation outside of going to the cross, let it happen. I don't want to go that path. But then this greater desire gets expressed in him where he says, nevertheless, let your will be done, not my will. You see, he had this tension he knew what was coming. But he would pray that your will be done, and then he lived it out as he went to the cross in order to save and heal you, in order to make the kingdom of God a reality for you. He did it because he loved you and I. We can ultimately trust him because we know that we follow and serve a king who would lay down his life on our behalf, who gets it because he's lived it. So, Father in heaven, we thank you for this picture of John and his confusion and his doubt. And we thank you for Jesus' words to him. Blessed are you 
You're not offended for the way that I rule, that you're not offended at me and my ways. You're flourishing when you still hold on. Help us to live into that reality. Help us to experience your life, your presence, your strength with us. Form us. We want to be a people who allow you to form us into people who look like you, Jesus. And we confess we're afraid. We don't like not feeling in control. It doesn't make sense. But more than having things make sense, we want you to do your will in our lives. So help us this week and this month trust you, to hold on, to seek you. Help us to bring our confusion and our losses to you. And have you lead us through those different emotions. Help us to express our anger, some of us for the first time towards you, in healthy ways. And forgive us in the moments when we fail to do that. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.